Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Great to see uh, everybody here. Let me add my good morning to everybody who's here this morning. Hadn't the worship been powerfully good today? Amen. And it's good to be in God's house together with God's people. I remember David in the Psalms when he made that powerful statement, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Weren't you glad somebody said it's time to go to church this morning? I love my church and I love my Lord and I love our people. And so thank you for being here today. We love even those of you that are watching by broadcast this morning. Maybe it's your computer or on a big screen television if you're out on vacation or out of town today. Uh, For those of you at Spanish Trail, know that we love you much and are praying for you this morning. So proud to be one church in two locations here in Pensacola, Florida. I don't know about you, but I'm ready to dig uh, dig into God's Word. How about it? Amen. Colossians chapter number 2 is where we are this morning. We're going to look at one of the most important passages in Colossians, one of the most theologically deep passages in Colossians. we got a lot of depth. We're going to plow close to the corn this morning. And so I need everybody set up straight, listen good, maybe even grab hold of that pew in front of you because we're going to have to hard charge today and, and squeeze this passage to get the simple from the complex which is what preachers are supposed to do. Somebody say amen. Now, we're in Colossians chapter 2 this morning, and we're going to be speaking on the subject, Finding Your Roots. That's actually the uh, name of a television program on public television. Some of you may have seen it. It's a program about ancestry. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but the ancestry, the genealogy business, is a huge uh, area of interest in our country today. Uh, popularity of websites like Ancestry.com and, and uh, FindingMyRoots.com uh, and uh, all of these others that have sprung up uh, all over the place are kind of a testimony that we want to know what our real identity is. We want to know our roots. We want to know who we are and what our forebears are like and where we've come from and what are the commonalities that we share with others who have lived before us in our family. And that's kind of what the TV show Finding Your Roots is all about hosted by a scholar named Henry Louis Gates. And what he does is typically uh, in every episode meet with two or three popular celebrities, maybe from the world of entertainment or politics or business, well-known people who know a lot about their skill set, a lot about what they do in life, but they don't know a lot about their past. They don't know a lot about their family. And over the course of each episode, he takes these people through a large scrapbook that's been prepared for them And that's what I would want. I want somebody to do all the work for me. Can I get an amen this morning? All the work has been done, and they plop that thing down in front of them, and they begin one by one to turn the pages, and right before their eyes, people come to find their roots and better understand their identity. Well, I want us all to know this morning that as true as that is for our physical family and our physical lineage, it's also true for us. If we know the Lord Jesus Christ, it's true for us spiritually as well. We have a family heritage, yes, but in Christ we also have a spiritual heritage that we very much need to know, and this is something that Paul helps us understand here in Colossians chapter 2. So let's take a look at this lengthy passage this morning as we today address the subject, Finding your roots. We'll begin reading in verse number eight. Everybody there with me say amen. The Bible says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy 
an empty deceit. According to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in the working of God in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. This is the word of God. Let all who agree say amen this morning. Father, we're grateful for the power of your word And I pray that in these few moments as now we return to these uh, passages line upon line that your spirit would speak to our heart. Give us understanding, not just so that we know, but so that we may live in a way that's worthy of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, if you were with us last week, uh, we talked for a few minutes about the importance of our walk with Christ. Paul tells us in the previous two verses to walk this way. And then he shows us what a Christian walk, what a Christian lifestyle is really all about. And one of the things that he shared in the passage we looked at last week was that our life in Christ is a life that's based on our being rooted in him. You remember that phrase? Being rooted and built up in him. And so these are fundamental truths that have to be applied in our life in order for us to live in a way that honors and pleases God. Very important for us to understand our roots. And Paul reminds us of that here uh, in this passage of Scripture. Some of the most important theological branches of our Christian family tree are unpacked here. And uh, here's what we need to know in three dimensions about our Christian family tree. First of all, and write this down, I've been filled, the Bible says, filled with the fullness of Christ which is just a mind-boggling reality when you really stop and think about that. Look at verse 9, verses 9 and 10. For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And then he says, you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, there are two things that are pointed out in these two verses. The first is the doctrine of the incarnation, which just simply means that God has come down and God has existed for a time in human flesh. The word incarnate means in flesh. And so we know by this time, or at least we should know, that that's who Jesus was. That was his principal identity. He wasn't just a child of God. He was very God himself, God in a body, God in flesh. And once again, here in verse 9, Paul just drills it once again. He's already made this same basic statement in chapter 1. 
And if there was any way to miss it or to misunderstand, Paul, like any good preacher, repeats himself frequently because it takes a while for sheep to get it, right? And so he comes back to this concept and makes it even more understandable. In Christ, the whole fullness of deity, the whole fullness of God dwelled in bodily form. So he makes no bones about it. Jesus was fully God. And Paul just makes clear what Jesus had already made clear in his own ministry. Remember what Jesus said to Philip in John 14, 9, whoever has seen me has seen who? The Father. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So make no mistake, God has expressed himself fully and most completely in the bodily person of God the Son, who is Jesus Christ. And that speaks, the the doctrine of the incarnation speaks to the supremacy of Jesus Christ, which is really the picture that Paul is trying to paint of Jesus throughout all of this letter to the Colossians. He is a supreme, preeminent Lord. He has no rival. He has no equal. Christ has no competition. But here's the thing. That has a direct application to my life because while the first statement speaks to the incarnation and the supremacy of Christ, verse number 10, rather, the second statement points to the doctrine of sanctification and speaks to the sufficiency of Christ. And you have been filled in him. You remember what we learned from Colossians chapter 1? What is the heart of the gospel in a single statement? What does Paul say the gospel truly is at its core foundation? Christ, what? In you. That's the hope of glory. And Oswald Chambers says, in my utmost for his highest, if you want a simple definition of sanctification, that's basically what sanctification is. Sanctification is Christ in a believer. Because what does the word sanctify mean? It's the same word from which we get our word holy. So to sanctify means to set apart, to consecrate, to make holy, literally, to make righteous. And what is it that brings righteousness to a believer's life? Remember, you cannot connect to a holy God without holiness. Well, where are you going to get that if all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God? Well, the only way you're going to get that is for Christ to move into your life. And that's what happens at salvation. Christ moves in you. Christ in you is the hope of glory. And when Christ moves in, guess what else moves in? Holiness, righteousness. The very righteous character of Jesus is now living on the inside of you and me. And it's the presence of Jesus and the righteous character of Jesus. That's what gives you standing and acceptance in the presence of a holy God, not only today when you pray and as you walk, but for all of your tomorrows when this life is over and you go to be with him forever in glory. That's what enables us to do it. It's because of Christ in us and the holiness of Christ in us. And so you put these two statements together about Jesus, who he is, and about who we are in Jesus, Colossians 2, 9 and 10. And I'm just saying what you got is what my son would call a double boom reality. And that is that God in his fullness dwells in Christ and Christ in his fullness dwells in me, 
which means that God in his fullness dwells in me. Everybody tracking with me? And if you've got the fullness of God, this is what makes it a problem for people to walk around who claim to know Jesus. Said, you know, I'm just trying to find more of God. Where where are you going to find it? If the fullness of God dwells in Christ and the fullness of Christ dwells in you, you've already got all of God within you that you're ever going to get. So the question is not about finding more of God. The question is abiding deeper in the Lord, walking more carefully in him. You can't possess any more of God than you already possess if you're indeed born again by faith. Everybody tracking with me? Say amen. So this is kind of the first arm of your Christian ancestry, the first important discovery of our Christian family tree. I have been filled with the fullness of God in Jesus Christ. Secondly, we learn from this passage that not only have we been filled with the fullness of Christ, second, we've been marked by the presence of Christ. Marked by the presence of Christ. In verses 11 and 12, Paul now takes time to explain how, how we came to be filled with the fullness of Christ. And he does so uh, by means of two identifying markers Uh, that are common to believers, markers that we actually belong to Christ. The first marker is circumcision, and the second marker is baptism. Did you all notice those two things as we read through the passage just a moment ago? Now, this is where it gets really deep. You look at any biblical commentary dealing with Colossians, and some of the longest sections in any of those commentaries are going to be dealing with this passage that we're looking at. So it can be a little bit confusing and it surely is very much deep. But again, let's see if we can squeeze it together and get the simple out of the complex. First, let's take a look at verse 11, the first picture that Paul gives for us here. In him, in Christ also, you were what? Circumcised, but then he qualifies it, with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, let's just stop there for a moment because most everybody in here is familiar with circumcision as it is a biblical reality, particularly in the Old Testament. That was a physical action on the part of God's people, the nation of Israel. And God gave them that physical mark called circumcision as a means of identifying them among all the other people's Uh, of the world. And that, of course, began with God's covenant with Abraham. God calls one man, Abraham, makes a covenant with him, says, you're going to have this huge progeny, this huge physical ancestry. They're going to come from your loins, and we're going to call them Israel, the people of God. I'm calling them as holy unto myself. And one of the ways that we're going to show them as being set apart unto God, unique among all of the other people, is we're going to have a physical sign. We're going to cut them on the flesh and leave a mark. And circumcision was that mark. It was the physical cutting of the foreskin on every male uh, among God's chosen people. And that cutting was a sign of their distinctiveness among all peoples of the world. God was so serious about that that he later coded it into the law. And so over time it became easier. I see all the men just kind of shifting a little bit this morning as we talk about circumcision. But most of y'all, who I hope all of you who were circumcised were circumcised at a time in your life where you sure don't remember it today, right? And so it was really hard for Abraham and all his kin 
because they had to start as adults, right? But then it got easier because it got coded into the law. And eight days after a male child was born, they would have a piece of their flesh cut, marking them physically and identifiably as belonging to God. And so, you know, that's Old Testament and everything. And a lot of times if I ask the question, must a believer, must a Christian be circumcised today? Everybody goes, no, that's part of the law. No. Well, you're wrong. Because believers, male and female, still are required to be circumcised. Thank the Lord, just not physically as a mark on the body. But it's still required. Paul talks more about this, by the way, in Romans chapter 2. I think it's in your notes. Romans 2 and verse 28. For no one is a Jew, he's speaking in spiritual terms here. No one is a Jew who is merely one, what? Outwardly. Nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. A spiritual Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the what? Say it out loud. A matter of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter as in the letter of the law. So ours is a circumcision. Yes, you're required to be circumcised, but not with the circumcision made by hands. Ours is a circumcision, literally the text says, unhandmade, unhandmade, made without hands, performed by the circumcision of Christ, literally performed by Christ. It's a circumcision performed by Christ. And that, of course, is just a reference to salvation. To say I've been circumcised by Christ is nothing more than simply saying I've been born again by faith in Jesus. Everybody tracking with me? Because what happens when you are born again by faith in Jesus is God cuts you right on the heart. And he changes your heart. And he moves into your life. What is the hope of glory? Say it out loud again. Christ in you. And that's the circumcision. The circumcision happens the very nanosecond that Christ moves into your heart and moves into your life. His presence is the identifying mark, no longer on the foreskin, amen. But now the mark is within me. The mark is the very presence of Jesus who consumes my life. I am immersed in Christ from the very time of salvation. And how do you know that's happened? Well, there will be, Paul says here in verse 11, you know it's happened because there is, with spiritual circumcision, a putting off of the body of flesh. Not just a piece of flesh. Man, when you're saved, the whole flesh of your whole life is thrown aside. There is an old life and a new life when a person is born again, and the old life gets totally removed and cast aside. That's the body of flesh, our old life before Jesus Christ. Paul in Scripture often refers to that old life as the old man. And that old man dies the minute Jesus moves in. That old life that's marked by sin, where self is the king, not Jesus. Listen, you can't have two kings ruling on a single throne in your life. One of them has to abdicate. And for Jesus to be king ruling in your heart, that means self and sin have to abdicate. And that's why you have to put off the old life, put off the old body 
of flesh. You remember when we quote that verse, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, old things have what? Passed away. All things have been. Well, the old things that have passed away is the body of flesh. Anything in my life where I controlled it, I ruled it, life was all about me, sin was in. So that's what happens when you're saved. Whenever a person is saved, we oftentimes equate salvation with life, life, eternal life exclusively. But before there can be eternal life, there has to first be a death. Salvation always means a death before the gift of life. And the death is the death to your old life. We die to sin, we die to self, we put off the old body of flesh, and now we live a new life that's focused on Christ, Christ who's in me, controlling my life. And we walk in Christ, and we bear much fruit as we abide in Christ. That's exactly what Paul was talking about in Galatians 2.20. Y'all remember Galatians 2.20? I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. You see that? First death, then life. I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, I have died with Christ and my old body of flesh has wasted away. It's done. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but what? Say it out loud. Christ lives where? In me, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me, Galatians 2.20. Great verse. Now, speaking about death and life, that's where the second illustration comes in. First, he talks about circumcision. Then he talks about baptism. Did you all catch baptism as we were reading through our passage a moment ago? Well, uh, he does in verse 12. Having been buried, again, he's carrying this death metaphor, putting off the body of flesh. Having been buried, which is a reference to death, buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also what? Raised, there's life, raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, let me just say, everybody should know that the Bible speaks of two kinds of baptism. There is a spirit baptism, and then there is a water baptism that symbolizes the spirit baptism. And it's the spirit baptism, I think, that Paul is talking about here. I don't think he's talking about water baptism, though that's not certainly to devalue water baptism because the imagery here is exactly the same for water baptism. Both spirit baptism and water baptism are important for believers, but Personally, when I read this, my own view is that baptism, we ought to interpret baptism in the same way we interpret circumcision. And he's not talking about literal circumcision for sure, is he? There's no question he's talking about a spiritual circumcision. And I think the same way, we ought to take the same images and interpret them the same way. So he's talking about baptism in a spiritual sense, our spiritual immersion, which is what the word baptized means. It means to submerge or to immerse, and that's what happens when a person is saved. Spirit baptism and salvation are the same thing. When you're saved, you are immersed by the very presence of God, Christ in you. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of Jesus immersing and indwelling a believer. And so from the moment of salvation, we are baptized by the spiritual presence of Christ, joined to Christ, union with Christ. We become one with Christ. And that happens not the moment you're baptized in water. It happens the moment you're what? Born again by faith. 
Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. He's looking backwards and he's reminding them of their salvation. And in the same way that he speaks of salvation there in 1 Corinthians 12, as a spiritual reality, that's exactly the same way he's talking about baptism here in Colossians chapter 2. And again, just like with circumcision, the imagery is the same. Two things happen simultaneously to believers when Christ circumcises their heart and when the Spirit of Christ floods their soul, baptizing and immersing them in the presence of Jesus. There is both a death, which Paul calls a burial here to emphasize its finality. There's a death and then there's a what? A resurrection. I die to sin, I die to self. Volume one of my life, I call it life BC, life before Christ, dead and buried, putting off the flesh. It's over, done, and the book is closed forever. God will never bring that past up again in the court of his judgment. Amen, amen, and amen. At the same time, I've put off the flesh. I'm raised by the power of God. So there's a death and a resurrection when I'm born again, when I'm spirit baptized, when I'm circumcised of the heart. Because now I've got Christ with me, Christ in me, and the presence of Christ enables me to live in a brand new life marked by God honoring holiness. Crucified with Christ, nevertheless alive in Christ. That's as simple as I know to make it. Everybody tracking with me say amen. All right? And here's the thing. That death and resurrection doesn't happen at your water baptism. It's symbolized by your water baptism. Everybody tracking with me? It happens when you're saved at your spirit baptism. Though it's beautifully pictured every time we'd be baptizing in the 11 o'clock service this morning. Water baptism is this outward public confession of what the Spirit of God has already done in your life prior to that time. Your old life has been put off. New life has come into your life. You've been raised together with Christ. You've put on Christ, died to self, put on Jesus. And by doing that, in the water, you're identifying with the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, and you're publicly testifying to your own death, burial, and resurrection to new life in Jesus Christ. It's a very important identifying marker of your life. And this, by the way, everybody still with me say amen. This is why we don't baptize babies. I mean, having said all of that, how could you baptize an infant? When the water baptism is supposed to picture an obvious presence of Christ in the heart, an obvious putting off of the old flesh, and an obvious putting on of Jesus Christ, which only happens, the Bible says, by what? By faith in Jesus Christ. It's abundantly clear, unarguably clear, that water baptism always follows spirit baptism. Water baptism means nothing if there has not first been a spirit baptism in the life of a born-again believer. Or as Paul says right here in Colossians 2, the death and the resurrection that occurs at salvation happens through what? Through faith in the powerful working of God. So baptism has no real meaning apart 
from faith. The point is for both of these illustrations, circumcision and baptism, is that we've been marked as belonging to God by the presence of Christ from the very moment that we're saved. We are heart circumcised. We are spirit baptized. Both of those things are really the same thing, honestly. And both of them happen by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And let me just say this morning, if you know Jesus, this is who you are. Spirit circumcised, spirit baptized, Christ in me. And I am marked as a child of God because I carry the very fullness of God in Christ everywhere I go. Amen. Now there's a third thing about our Christian ancestry. I've been filled with the fullness of Christ. I've been marked by the presence of Christ. Finally, I've been raised through the sacrifice of Christ, which is just another way of saying anything about me. I am who I am, not because of anything that I've done, for no good can I do to curry favor with God, but I am who I am solely by the grace of God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us, say it out loud, all our trespasses. Say that phrase out loud with me again. Together, all our trespasses. It's one of the great reminders of the Bible. Let me just say this morning, if we're in a condition of death, spiritual death, And we all are before we meet the Lord, right? You who were what? Dead in your transgressions. If that's true, and it surely is about your life, your only hope is a resurrection from the dead. You need somebody from outside to kind of do a spiritual version of CPR on your life and bring you back from the dead because apart from that, you have no hope. And that's exactly what God did for us in the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You being dead, God made alive. You didn't, you didn't make yourself alive. Not a person in here has what it takes to make themselves alive. Any more than a drowning sinner whose lungs are full of water. No. You don't have the power to forgive your own sin. That's something that God alone can do for you and wants to do for you by means of his grace. And here's what's beautiful about that. God's done all the work. All the work is totally and completely done. It's complete. It's full. God has forgiven us. How many of our trespasses? Say it out loud, please. All. And do you all believe all means all or just some? No, all means all. That's a great Greek lesson. That's the simplest Greek lesson I can ever give you. All means all. Having forgiven us, there's just no way to misunderstand that. When you trust Jesus, how much of your sin is forgiven? Past sins, present sins, and what else? Future sins too, all of them. All means all. That's why we love to sing that great old song, It Is Well With My Soul, but it has a verse in there that says, my sin, you remember this verse? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross, and I bear it 
no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. And it's that reality that enables us with integrity to sing, it is well with my soul. Because if Christ didn't die to forgive all your sins, you could never sing that song truthfully. Because you'd never know if all was well with your soul or not. This is one of the reasons, for many reasons, I believe in the security of the believer unto final salvation. I don't believe a person who's generally saved can ever, 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 ever again be lost. One, because God has forgiven all our sins, even the ones I haven't committed yet. And two, uh, because it's God who is the one who has raised me to what kind of life? Eternal life. And if you could lose it, how in the world could it have ever been eternal to begin with? It was conditional life. No, eternal means unending. So Christ has forgiven all my sin, and in faith, God has raised me to eternal life. And the way that's happened is spelled out in verse 14. God has forgiven all our sin, Paul says. How? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, God has a requirement for life with him. I've already alluded to it earlier. The requirement for life with God is holiness, something you don't have in your own natural condition. So sin can't fellowship with holiness. This is the human dilemma. God requires holiness, and because we come into this world broken, we come into this world, Paul says, in a condition of what? Indebtedness. To God, sin creates a debt, and you think the United States is in a heap of debt, $21 trillion, you can't even count that high. As much as we're in debt in this country, you're even in more debt when it comes to your status with God. Because there are ways to pay off a $21 trillion debt, probably. I need to move on because I'm getting out of my lane when I talk about that. But there's no way for you to pay off the insurmountable debt that sin has put you in with a holy God. Now, we try all kind of ways to pay the debt because most of us know we're sinners, right? So we try to do good things or we try to keep the law. I, I get tickled at people who say, well, I think I'm okay with God because I keep the Ten Commandments on the Sermon on the Mount. Liar, liar, pants on fire. You, do, you don't even come close to keeping it. You try to keep it. Tell me how that's working out for you. I mean, the whole point is you can't keep it. That's why the law is there, to show you how desperate you are for somebody to save you. Because you can't keep it. You break it almost every hour on the hour in some way, shape, or form. We know full well all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we know full well that we try to keep the law of God. We try to do good things to get God to like us and to get God to accept us and to satisfy this obligation that all of us know that we have with a holy and righteous God. But haven't you found, if you've ever tried to do that, haven't you found that the more good you try to do, the more bad you end up doing? See, this is what caused Paul to cry out in Romans chapter 7, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? And then Jesus raises his hand and said, I will. 
That's the gospel. You can't rescue yourself, but our Lord came and said, I'll do it, and the name is Jesus Christ. And the cross was how he did it. Aren't you thankful that even though we had a debt we could not pay, Christ paid the debt he did not owe? (laughs) That's grace. Canceled it. The word literally means to wipe away. You remember the passage in Revelation where we're told that Christ will wipe away every tear from our eye? It's the same word here. Christ wiped away the debt like ink on a whiteboard, just wiped it all away, and there's not even a residual left. Sets the believer free. And man, I'm telling you, that's not all. I could preach all morning. That's not all. God has forgiven my sin, canceled my debt. Third, he's conquered my enemies. That's the last thing Paul says here in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, Paul doesn't take time to name who those rulers and authorities are, and scholars talk about it. Were they nations? Were they physical leaders? I think he's, everything in this passage has a spiritual dimension to him. I think he's talking about spirit beings, evil spirit beings that want to destroy your life, the, the realm of the demonic, the principalities and the powers and the host of wickedness in the heavenly places that Paul talks about in uh, Ephesians uh, in different passages in the Bible outside of Ephesians. It's the same thing that he's talking about here. Spirit terms, the evil spiritual realm, the forces of our adversary, the devil. What's he done? In the, cro- the cross has disarmed those jokers. Just took the gun. There's a, there's a, a deal you can look up on YouTube with a guy who's the, fa- he, he supposedly has the fastest maneuver to, to disarm somebody that's trying to hold him up. The guy's standing there with a gun, and it's gone. Gun is gone. You look it up on YouTube. You just watch it over and over again. Can't get enough of this stuff. Well, that's what Jesus did to the forces who were holding us at gunpoint by the schemes of the devil. Christ dies on the cross. It's gone. Done. Disarmed them. Literally, it means to strip which is what they did with Jesus when they hung him up on the cross. Stripped him totally naked. Exposing him in humiliation. Man, one of the ironies of ironies. And that's what they would do back in Paul's day, whether it was Caesar or whomever. When they conquered another king in battle, they'd bring him back to Rome. They'd have a victory parade, confetti everywhere, people cheering. And there'd be a horse-drawn caisson, and there'd be a pole on that caisson, and they would have the conquered king tied to that pole, totally naked, stripped, exposed, and humiliated. That's what they did to Jesus. But the reality is, little did they know that as they exposed and humiliated the Lord of glory that the eternal king of the universe was exposing and disarming and humiliating them for all eternity. And every adversary, spiritual adversary, physical adversary, does not matter. Every adversary that you have 
in the spirit world who would set themselves up in opposition to the glory of God and in opposition to the one who's been blood bought by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus made it very clear with his dying words what they could understand without question. Namely, what did he say when it was all said and done? It is what? Finished. The battle is over. Your enemies have been once and for all exposed, disarmed, and forever conquered by the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Here's the thing. This side of heaven, you are going to get beat up, stirred up, shaken up, mixed up, and messed up. But even in the face of that, don't you ever give up. Because let me give it to you straight up this morning. No weapon formed against you shall prosper because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. That's the gospel of Colossians right there in a nutshell. Amen. And if you want to know what your family ancestry looked like, that's it right there. Filled with the fullness of Christ, marked by the presence of Christ, raised to forever life by the sacrifice of Christ Would you just join me this morning in saying, thanks be to God for his indescribable grace. This is the word of God. Let all who agree with it say amen today. Amen and amen. Let's give him praise this morning.